If you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, that's our passage for today. This is our ongoing series through the book of 1 Corinthians, a roadmap for raw Christians. Paul's going to begin talking about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11. It's on page 959 of the ESD Pew Bibles. Go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. We want to understand this passage. Uh, we, we don't want anyone leaving here today wondering what this is about. And Father, we also want wisdom and, and knowledge to be able to apply what you're teaching us in your word to our day-to-day life. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a husband and wife who decided to go camping, and so they borrowed a camper from their in-laws, and uh, they drove out to the campground, and they very carefully backed the camper into the site, and they, they positioned it where they wanted it, and, and they unhitched it and, and leveled it and got it all set. And then it was time to pop it up, since it was a, a pop-up camper. So one person got on one side, and the other person got on the other side, and they, they hefted it up, and they, they got the front end up and put pins in it to kind of stabilize it. And then they both moved to the back, but because the camper was old, and because the front was locked in place and the back was still loose, it was more difficult to get the back than the front. And so they, they started pushing and pulling, and, and the husband said, here, a little more my way. And, and then she said, uh, well, now I, mine doesn't fit. Bring it over my way. And so he pushed it over her way, and he said, well, now mine's out of alignment. And he said, hold on a second. Let's, let's get mine in first, and then we'll work on your side. So they, they positioned it, and the husband put his pin in. And he said, okay, now it's your turn. And she said, all right, well, I think... If we can pull it a little my way, then I can get the pin in. One, two, three. And before he could do anything, all he heard was pull. So they were both pulling, and she said, no, that's worse. And then she counted again. One, two, three, pull. And it, of course, it still wasn't aligning. So the husband went around on the other side, and he said, oh, it needs to come your way. And she said, yes, that's what I said. I said, if I can pull it my way, we can get the pin in. And he said, I'm sorry. All I heard was pull it, and they started to count. So they grabbed it, they pulled it together, and the pin slid right in. They were pulling in the wrong direction. What a difference that makes when you pull in the right direction. Some of the raw believers in Corinth were pulling in the wrong direction. They were fighting against one another and against the Holy Spirit. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, Paul begins his teaching on spiritual gifts and he tells them repeatedly, although there are a variety of spiritual gifts, there's only one God and he's giving those gifts with the same person, purpose. Believers are not to take off on their own, they're supposed to pull in the same direction. So we're going to look at what that same direction is. It's the common good. It's for building up the church. But we're also going to take some time this morning, an extended period of time, to look specifically at the gift of prophecy. What is it? And is it in existence today? 
So let's read these verses. It's 1 through 11 of chapter 12. Spiritual gifts. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Paul begins this chapter or this this section by saying now concerning spiritual gifts and that phrase now concerning is our uh, alert sign that says he's introducing a new topic. He's, he's done talking about the previous topic. This is a new one. And in this case, it is spiritual gifts. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed. And that's his way of saying, you need some instruction and correction on this topic as well. I, I'm going to give you some, some teaching here and I want you to pay attention because I don't want you uh, to get this wrong. And then in verse 2, he briefly reminds them to remember their lives before they came to Christ. He said, you remember back before you were in Christ when you were worshiping these pagan gods? They're really nothing more than, he calls them, mute idols. Mute idols. In the Old Testament, idols and pagan gods were often contrasted with the one true God by their inability to speak. For example... Psalm 115, 3-7 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. So it seems as if Paul is picking up on this Old Testament pattern of of contrasting pagan gods and and mute idols with the one true God. He's saying, however you were led astray, no matter what God or gods you worshipped, they didn't speak or act. And then in verse 3 he says, therefore I want you to understand that no one is speaking, or no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So first of all, we need to take a time out here. This is not some kind of proof text or challenge password that we can, we can confront someone with and, and see if they utter those three words like some sort of magic spell or, or password that, that verifies their genuineness in Christ. Yes, we understand it's possible for people who are not regenerate to utter these three words. That's not what he's talking about. By writing this, Paul's showing them, um, he's saying, saying, look, these pagan gods that you used to worship, 
uh, they're not like the God you worship now. The, the pagan gods that you worshipped were mute idols. They didn't say anything. Therefore, their followers could say and do whatever they wanted to do. They, they could make any kind of wild claim. They could, they could claim to be speaking on behalf of their God. They could live or do whatever they wanted to do and, and justify it as something that their God, little g, permitted. There were no boundary markers. Each could go their own way, and it didn't matter. In fact, it was encouraged. There were, uh, there, it was very rare to find someone in this, this context in first century Corinth that worshipped one god singular. They, they worshipped a variety of gods. They burned incense to all kinds of different pagan gods, and they mixed and matched different beliefs. Paul saying, but the real God, the living God, does speak. And his followers cannot do whatever they want, and his followers cannot say whatever they want and claim divine inspiration or being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he lays forth two extreme examples. Jesus is accursed? That's definitely not from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord? Yes, that's in alignment with what um, the truth of God proclaims. So how is this connected to the larger teaching that he's going to be laying out? He's, being, he's telling them repeatedly that all the gifts that God gives are given by the one spirit. All the gifts that God gives are given by the same God. God has a consistency about his speech and about his actions and about his purpose for giving spiritual gifts. Even though there are a variety of gifts, there are not a variety of purposes for which those gifts are given. So God expects his church to be pulling in the same direction. In short, he's telling them, you can't go off and make any kind of claim and expect to get away with it. Our God is consistent, and he has a consistent message. The problem in Corinth seemed to be prideful possession and expression of spiritual gifts, and also a somewhat disordered and chaotic uh, expression or use of spiritual gifts that involved speech. Spiritual gifts are to help build up the church, to strengthen the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. So after laying that out in verses uh, 4 and following, there, he gives us a variety of gifts, but again, one purpose, all pulling in the same direction. And if we read our, uh, that, that first verse or two, it says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit variety of service with the same Lord, variety of activities, same God. What is that? Spirit, Lord, God. Well, that's a Trinitarian reference. The Holy Spirit, Lord is Jesus Christ. God the Father often referred to in the New Testament as simply uh, God. So we've got a Trinitarian reference to uh, the giving of these gifts. Again, he's emphasizing the oneness. There are a variety of gifts, but they're all given by the same God. He has one purpose, he's consistent, and it's not going to be all over the place. Our God is a God of order. We're going to see that pop up in 1 Corinthians 14. He is not a God of chaos. Our God is consistent in his purpose. And what purpose is that? We can look to verse 7. The common good. The common good. Meaning the common good of the church, the people of God to help the body move together. It's kind of like a, 
uh, th this train or this, this barge going down the track or going down the river. And it's like, don't leave anybody behind. We want to make sure everybody's on board. We're not going to speed ahead or go off in different directions. We all want to move together. And this recalls his teaching in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 16, where it talks about everyone being built up in the body of Christ. Christ gave his church gifts, and they're there to build up everybody in the body of Christ. Make sure we all move along together so that no one in the end is uh, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or we leave some behind and some go on ahead. No, it's to bring everyone along together to build up the whole church, the common good. And then what we have in the rest of our passage is a list of spiritual gifts. This is the longest list in the New Testament. It's not the only list, but it's the longest gift list in, in the New Testament. Uh, there are other lists, such as Romans 12, Ephesians 4, I made reference to a moment ago. But when we compare this list with the other lists of New Testament spiritual gifts, we can conclude a couple of things. Number one, this list is not exhaustive. When we turn through the Bible and we looked at other lists of spiritual gifts, we see that there are some mentioned in other lists that aren't mentioned here. And there are some gifts mentioned in this list that aren't listed in other lists. So this is not an exhaustive list. We also can observe very quickly that some spiritual gifts we can call miraculous and others are the Holy Spirit working through ordinary human activity. And some of these are self-evident. Some of these need to be um, flushed out. For example, ordinary human activity, acts of mercy, financial giving, teaching, ruling, governing, uh, exhortation, serving. Some of those are mentioned here. Others are mentioned in other gift lists. Um, those are ordinary activity that the Holy Spirit empowers. Then there are the miraculous ones. First of all, working of miracles. That's fairly self-evident. But also prophecy, prophets, apostles, and gifts of healing. So let's dig in. Verse 8, utterance of wisdom. Um, while wisdom and knowledge are related, it seems like knowledge is, is the, the possession of, of knowledge, of, of having a, a grasp and understanding of something, but wisdom is the ability to take right action in light of that. In other words, wisdom is applying knowledge. So applying truth Utterance of wisdom then would mean the ability to communicate wisdom. Utterance of knowledge would be the ability to communicate knowledge. And we can see that this would be extremely helpful for the church. Wouldn't it be helpful for the saints in Corinth to have someone with the gift of knowledge and the ability to communicate Old Testament truths? Not everyone was an Old Testament scholar. We kind of need some of those people with that gift to be able to explain knowledge of God from God's word. We can also see how just as important would be someone who is able to apply that and to bring the truth of God to bear on our day-to-day -day living. Extremely helpful, very practical for the church. Verse 9, the gift of faith. I can't refer to saving faith because that's common to every single believer who is in Christ. So it must be a special measure of faith given to some who can believe. And in this context, it seems like those who can believe and perform some sort of special service to the church. Most likely those who have faith, they can believe in miracles. That would complement the other miraculous gifts. In 13.2, Paul writes, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, and he's linking faith with the ability to 
to perform miracles or to believe in miracles. Jesus said of Nazareth in Matthew 13, 58, and he did not do many, many mighty works there because of their unbelief or lack of faith. So we see a connection between faith and, and miracle working in scripture. A faith that goes above and beyond saving faith and a general belief in Christ. So it's something that not everybody has, but we can see how this gift would be helpful too to the church. You might want to put somebody like that in charge of your prayer meetings. Somebody who has the gift of faith and, and believes um, God has the ability to do miracles. Gifts of healing. When it mentions gifts of healing, it's probably not referring to one person that can heal all people uh, all the time of, of every single physical problem that you would ever encounter. If it was something like that, we would probably see something like that in Scripture. We would also probably see something like uh, a person with that type of extraordinary gifting setting up some sort of camp or, or ministry headquarters where they're literally healing everybody who walks through the door. We don't see that. What we do see in Scripture are certain people endowed with gifts of healing that are performed as part of a regular ministry. Not all the time, but also not one-time, non-repeatable events. For example, Acts 14, 8 through 10. This is Paul. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now that's a miraculous healing. It was done by the Apostle Paul, who had a regular, semi-regular ministry. This wasn't the only person that was healed by Paul. But at the same time, Paul didn't heal every single person that came to him. And it seems as if that's the case, even if Paul wanted to. Um, we read in Philippians chapter 2 about Epaphroditus, his brother and fellow worker who was so ill, he almost died. Paul didn't heal him. And it seems like if he had this uh, instantaneous, all the time, every person type of healing gift, he would have healed someone who was close to him. So a regular ministry, but not all the healing all the time. Has this gift ceased today? I would argue yes. Now, does that mean that God never heals anyone miraculously? No. Um, it's, it, it's not uncommon. In fact, I've heard the testimony of those who have been miraculously healed, but that's not some part of a regular ministry on behalf of someone. That's usually in response to active, fervent, and faithful prayer. Does God answer prayer today? Of course he does. So it shouldn't surprise us at all to see that God answers the prayer for healing, not on any kind of uh, regular, predictable basis, but he still does that. So I think we can say this, um, although we still have events of miraculous healing from time to time, usually as a result of an answer to prayer by his church, God is not, um, let's put it this way, God is still in the business of healing, he's not in the business of anointing healers, okay? There's nobody walking around with the, the gift of healing as part of a regular ministry um, and a, a regular uh, ongoing ministry of healing. If that were the case, again, we'd see somebody set up shop and start healing people on a pretty regular basis, and we don't see that. Verse 10, working of miracles. When we see the working of miracles in the apostolic age or elsewhere in the Bible, it is always 
let's talk about the New Testament for a minute. It's always to validify the message of Jesus Christ, the workers of Jesus Christ, or something that, that God is doing redemptively and historically in his church. It is never done as uh, a display of raw power or simply a, a random act of, of, of performing a miracle just for show or something like that. It's always pointing to Jesus Christ and his servants. That has also ceased. That ended with the apostolic age. Prophecy. Let's come back to that one. We're going to spend some time on that in the application. Ability to distinguish between spirits. This seems to be the ability to examine the content of a message or a messenger to determine the validity of what's being spoken. And I think specifically in this context and in the apostolic age, it appears to be centered around the ability to distinguish between true prophets and false prophets. And I don't think it's an, uh, an accident that it occurs right after the listing of prophecy. So that has ceased, but I think there's still an element of this gift today in the sense that there are some believers who seem to have the ability to discern truth from error better than other believers. I think that's a valid statement when we, when we evaluate um, how this, this, this might manifest itself today. Um, to, to evaluate teachings and ideas that are laid before the church by different teachers and have a, a level of discernment to identify and understand and kind of classify them as, okay, that, that's inconsistent with scripture, or no, that's off. That, that, we don't see that in scripture. That, that's not true teaching. So I think there's the possibility of a continuation of this gift, not as it was practiced in the apostolic age, but as it's practiced on a continual basis. The next two, various kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Again, we're going to hold off on that one. Hang in there. This is best discussed within the context of 1 Corinthians 14. We have an extended passage coming up where that's basically all he talks about. We'll get there, but not, not today. So I'm going to have to put pause on that. Uh, verse 11, and all these empowered by the one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. As he wills. We all have spiritual gifts. We all have spiritual gifts. The, the, the giving of gifts by the Holy Spirit is not the basis upon which the church should build some kind of two-tiered Christianity where some believers have spiritual gifts and, and other believers don't have spiritual gifts. That's just not the case. That would promote division rather than unity. We all have gifts. They're given and empowered by the Holy Spirit which means you cannot give a Holy Spirit gift to yourself. Uh, none of us can give ourselves spiritual gifts. They are apportioned and endowed by the Holy Spirit. There's also no room for boasting. Since we're not giving these gifts to ourselves, we can't invent them on our own. There's no, there's no use for boasting. And that's going to be one of Paul's points in the rest of the chapter. To summarize this, pulling in the same direction, Paul's saying this. He's teaching on spiritual gifts, and he starts by reminding the church that unlike their previous way of life where they serve mute idols, they now serve the living God who speaks. Not only does God speak, but his revelation and purposes are unified and consistent. It's the same God who endows his people with a variety of gifts. And although there are a variety of gifts, they all serve the same purpose, and that purpose is the common good of the church, the body of Christ. 
the, the problem in Corinth, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter, Lord willing, next week, seems to be an unhealthy individualism. An, an unhealthy uh, separating from one another, a, a lack of awareness about the unity of the body and a prideful possession and expression of spiritual gifts. In other words, they're, pull, they're not pulling in the same direction. In fact, they're, they're pulling in, in opposite directions. They should be unified around Christ. They should be unified around the mission of the church to gather and perfect the saints, to go and make disciples, but they're not. Now, despite having these instructions for approximately 2,000 years, the church sometimes finds herself with congregations that like to think of themselves as a collection of individuals rather than one body. It happens. I remember uh, distinctly supervising a, a church that had this problem. There were several gifted members. There were several people that were very gifted in the Lord, but each was interested in their own ministry. They, they practiced this kind of possession uh, around an, an elitism and an exclusion around their particular ministries. The church had stopped becoming a place where each person was supposed to exercise their gift for the good of the body. Instead, it was a vehicle used to promote themselves uh, and to gain followers. Instead of cooperating with one another, they were competing with one another. And they were competing for everything. They were competing for, for time up front. They were competing for uh, money in the budget. They were competing for space in the bulletin. I mean, you name it, they were competing for it. Ministry heads would use the language of our people to describe those who were involved in their ministry. And language like them and the rest of them were used to describe the church. There was no common good, no unity, only posturing and politics. They weren't pulling in the same direction. They were actually pulling the church apart. Instead, this passage teaches us the church should more, look more like a team of rowers. Maybe you've seen those collegiate rowers that are just kind of skimming over the surface of the water with those long, shallow-bottomed rowboats. And they've got a team, one person on each side kind of staggered all the way to the back and, and one person calling out the, the, the count in the back. When, when you've seen a picture of this, everybody has their oar in the water, everybody's synchronized, and they, they go for that power stroke, and they put their legs and back and arms, and, woo, and they all do it as one, that boat can really start to move. It's likewise a church, when it is practicing spiritual gifts and everybody's synchronized and in unity, the church can get up some serious speed. It can really cover some ground. But if one person has an oar sitting idly in their lap while they post their latest selfie, or another person has oar is dragging in the water while they've got their head in their hands because they're sulking about something, or another uh, member has their oar and they're deliberately paddling in the opposite direction because they're mad about something, that church isn't really going to go anywhere. It's certainly not going to achieve the goals that Christ has for it. So no matter what gift God has given you, you can know with certainty that he has given you that gift to build up the body of Christ, which is the church. He's given you that gift for the common good. That's what scripture teaches. Let's circle back and talk about the gift of prophecy. We, we need to look at this in detail because if this gift is misunderstood, it can cause some damage to the church, especially to new believers. So let's, let's take a look at this. First of all, 
we can conclude that New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets are two distinct offices, two distinct gifts. They're listed as distinct from one another in Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So they're listed as two different things there in Ephesians 4. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 29, Paul asks, and we're going to get to this, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? They're listed separately. So they're distinct. They're not the same thing. Uh, Prophecy and prophets are also not the same thing as uh, teaching or preaching. They're also listed separately. Paul doesn't encourage Timothy to prophesy the word. He charges him to preach the word. So we want to make sure we make these distinctions. If the Bible views them as separate, then so do we. Secondly, we can conclude that even though these are distinct from each other, prophets and apostles, they both served the same function to lay down foundational revelation from God for the early church. Ephesians 2, 19-21 But you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul's talking about the church in this passage, in these verses, about the church how it's made up of Jew and Gentile. And he says this church, this this new covenant church, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, one indicator that tells us that he doesn't have the Old Testament prophets in mind, that he is talking about the New Testament prophetic office, is the word order. Now, sometimes that's significant, sometimes it's not. In this case, it is. Uh, Especially when we look to other places in the New Testament, and we see the word order switched around when we want to talk about, or when the, when the authors want to talk about Old Testament prophets. For example, 2 Peter 3.2. He says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So that in that context, he is talking about the Old Testament prophets, and they're listed first because they preceded the, the apostles. Let's jump back to Ephesians again. Ephesians 3. And again, see how they're linked together and their role of declaring new revelation from God regarding the mystery of Christ, the gospel. Revelation, he says, that it was not given to previous generations. So it can't be talking about the Old Testament prophets. Here it is. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this, these are right next to each other. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3 is part of the same letter, same context. He's clearly talking about a New Testament office, a New Testament prophet. The apostles and the prophets were both given divine revelation from God for the purpose of laying down that foundation. Remember when we talked about the apostles, I think earlier in, in 1 Corinthians there was this time period, the church, with this, this uh, kind of fledgling, newborn, new covenant church, where they had the Old Testament, but they did not have the New Testament. Uh, the, the first several decades of the church, they, they didn't have what we have. And so during that time, it was being laid down. 
through the apostles and the prophets. God supernaturally intent, uh, superintended this, this doctrine, this once and for all faith that was laid down in the early church. The prophets had a role to play. So Paul tells us twice in Ephesians that both of them declared this new Christ-centered revelation from God and it was necessary for establishing that first century church. Now a further review, if we were to take a long time, we're not going to this morning, but if we were to take a long time and review everything that the New Testament prophets said or revealed, we would see that they centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church and Paul's mission to the Gentiles. It's very difficult to, to truly grasp how changing and how shifting that was for the people of God to start to include Gentiles. It was very difficult for the predominantly Jewish church to get over and to accept. And so we needed to have this foundational teaching about the inclusion of the Gentiles. And then also the validity of the church as the new temple of God, meaning that God now dwells with his people and not in a particular building, in a particular city, meaning the temple in Jerusalem. A new Testament scholar Joel Beakey writes, God used prophecy to establish the church in its early New Covenant administration with the freshly revealed truths of Christ, Christ's finished work, the Gentile mission spearheaded by Paul, and the full inclusion of believing Gentiles with Jews as God's spiritual temple on earth. That was the content of, of the prophetic message and the foundation. So when we put this all together, we start to get a fairly accurate picture of what this office of New Testament prophet looked like. They were similar but distinct from apostles, and they had a similar mission, and that was to lay down the foundational teaching necessary for the New Covenant Church. Let's take a look at one prophetic saying in particular. This is Acts 21, 10 through 11. It says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentile. Excuse me, into the hands of the Gentiles. Well, what does scripture say about testing to see whether a prophet is true or not? It says, if a prophet makes a prophecy and the prophecy comes true, then they're a true prophet of God. However, Deuteronomy 18 says, if a prophet makes a prophecy and it doesn't come true, then they're not speaking on behalf of God. It says they're speaking presumptuously, is the language. So let's take this. This is a prophet, New Covenant, New Testament prophet, Agabus, and he prefaces his words with, thus says the Holy Spirit, just like the Old Testament prophets used to say, thus says the Lord, and he makes this prophecy. Well, let's turn and see how it turned out. This is Acts 28, 17, and now this is Paul recounting what happened to him when he went to Jerusalem. Acts, 8, uh, Acts 28, 17 says, After three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing wrong against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So Agabus said, The Jews at Jerusalem... In Acts 28, 17, Jerusalem, bind prisoner into the hands, into the hands 
of the, Roman, of the Gentiles, of the Romans. It's a word-for-word -word fulfillment. So the Bible teaches us that New Testament prophets function in the same way as Old Testament prophets. They revealed the words of God. Now, what we do not find in the New Testament about prophets is also very interesting. Nowhere do we find evidence in the New Testament to suggest that the prophets that operated under the New Covenant were any, other, uh, any different um, than the Old Testament prophets. Nowhere do we find some sort of second definition of prophets where they weren't speaking divine revelation from God and laying down those foundational truths. We also do not find in the New Testament prophets directing average believers to do something or to guide them in their personal day-to-day -day decisions, which is something that modern advocates of prophecy uh, believe is one of the functions of prophecy. Once the foundation was laid, once the New Testament was written, there was no longer a need to lay the foundation. Obviously, it had been laid. It doesn't need to be laid twice. God will not add to the perfect and full revelation that he has made through his Son and through his Word. Now, this understanding of prophets and prophecy not only accords with Scripture, but it actually explains why some of the New Testament books are not written by apostles, namely Mark, Luke, and Jude. Maybe you've heard that before. You've heard someone say, well, the New Testament was written by the apostles. Well, almost. But what about these three books? Because nowhere in Scripture are these people, Mark, Luke, Jude, nowhere are they mentioned as, as uh, apostles. Well, they were prophets speaking divine and recording and writing divine speech under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It also, this understanding of prophecy, prevents us from having to make excuses for so-called modern prophecy, which also fails to prove true on a fairly regular basis. In other words, we no longer have to say, well, uh, sometimes prophets get it right, but, you know, sometimes they don't. We don't have to make excuses for them. We also don't have to invent a new definition of what a prophet is. For example, some would say that New Testament prophets today are simply revealing something that they think God is telling them, and they're telling it in their own words, so that, you know, it's prone to error, and it might get a little bit mixed up somewhere in translation. But if someone is claiming to speak the words of the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit ever wrong? Do we say of the Old Testament prophets, well, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, sometimes they got it right, sometimes they didn't. No. And neither can we say that about New Testament prophets. So if someone has an impression or if they think they, they might maybe be getting a feeling about what God could be telling them, then just explain it like that. Say, you know, I've got a very subjective impression. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but this is kind of my thought on it. But we can't call that prophecy, and we certainly couldn't call that person a prophet in the sense that the Bible describes a prophet. Continuationists, or those that believe prophecy is continuing today, may point to such verses as 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, where it says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So a continuation might, continuationist might point to this verse and say, Okay, look, um, this is a New Testament command. 
which means prophecy is intended to be normative for the church age, and it tells us that all prophecies are to be tested if they're accurate or not. That's why some people who have the gift of prophecy are occasionally wrong. New Testament prophecy needs to be tested. Well, in answering, we would say that the Bible is not written to us, but for us. This particular verse is part of a letter written to the church in Thessalonica in the first century. It wasn't written to us. So those believers at that time still had prophets and apostles walking around. So they were not to despise prophecies that came from these New Testament prophets. Just because something is recorded for us in Scripture does not mean it is supposed to be normative throughout the church age until Christ returns. For example, should we expect a repeat of Pentecost as recorded for us in Acts 2? I hope not. That was a one-time, non-repeatable event. Or what about a specific command from Jesus? Jesus commanded a man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor and then follow him. That's a command from Jesus, and it's in the New Testament. But it was not written to us. It was delivered to that man, and it is for our instruction and our benefit. In response to the command to test everything, it makes much more sense to understand that Paul is warning the church to test whether or not someone is a true or false prophet rather than commanding the believers in Thessalonica to test whether or not a true prophet from God prophesying by the Spirit was being accurate or inaccurate. The New Testament has repeated warnings about false teachers and false prophets, but the New Testament nowhere says that there are two kinds of prophecy, the kind that's always true and the kind that's sometimes true. Now we praise God that he has given his church good gifts, including the gift of prophecy, to lay down that foundation in the early church with revelatory uh, divine speech and words. But we also praise God that he has closed the canon, and we don't always have to keep wondering whether God's going to contradict himself or send some sort of new message. As Jude 3 states, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all, not continuing or certainly not contradicting itself. So there is no new revelation that's needed or necessary or that it could ever replace the full and final revelation that God has given us through his son and his word. Now, this is important because not only does believing in the continuation of prophecy stand in contradiction to scripture, but it also opens the door for some serious harm. If someone claims to be a prophet, or if someone today claims to have prophetic gifts, they can gain an unhealthy, and I would call an unholy influence over people. Um, If you think someone is receiving direct revelation from God, then you're more likely to believe what they say, no matter what they say you're more likely to believe the position they take no matter what that position is. And you're more likely to follow them no matter where they lead. And that's just plain dangerous. I mean, you think about it, um, the potential for abuse is almost limitless. It's extremely dangerous. Now, someone might say, I'd raise a hand and say, yeah, I get it. I I don't want to follow a church leader that claims to hear from God. I get that. I don't think that's appropriate. 
But doesn't God speak to us and guide us by the Holy Spirit? After all, doesn't Paul teach that we are to be, quote, led by the Spirit? Um, yes, in fact, he does teach that in two places. Romans 8.14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So we need to understand what he means by this. And to understand it, we need to look at the immediate and wider biblical context. Instead of taking this verse in isolation and then taking that phrase, led by the Spirit, in isolation and in a, assigning it a meaning that, that we think or, or that we would like it to mean, why don't we look at the verses that come before and after those verses and see what Paul meant? So the question is, does Paul mean we are to concentrate and listen intently to an inner voice or a subconscious yet divine prompting or a heartfelt impulse to do certain things, say certain things, or make certain decisions? Or does Paul mean we are to read God's word and obey the Holy Spirit's guidance to walk in the way of sanctification, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, pursuing holiness and the fruit of the Spirit as we pursue and persevere through the suffering and trials that are inherent to the Christian life until we reach our glorification. I would argue the latter, because that's what Scripture says. If you go back and read these in context, that's what led by the Spirit means. It doesn't mean we're to be very quiet and listen and act on what we think God is telling us to do in a particular situation. Um, I remember a believer that I was talking to one time that their answer for everything seemed to be, oh, I just listen to the Holy Spirit as, as he leads me. And I couldn't take it anymore. And finally, when they were relating to something to me about something they were doing that was clearly unscriptural, I said, that's not really taught in the New Testament and before it could continue at all, they said, oh, no, never mind, never mind, that's okay. Because in the end, you know what I do when I'm not sure if the Bible teaches something or not? I pray about it, and then I do whatever the Holy Spirit tells me to do. To which I said, I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit is never going to tell you to do something that contradicts Scripture. And that was the end of the conversation. Led by the Spirit means obeying the Bible. It doesn't mean an inner voice that we think we might hear. When God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit speaks, he speaks authoritatively, not ambiguously, not unclearly, not something that's prone to error. When God speaks, he speaks with authority. Somebody, again, might raise a hand of objection and say, well, <laughs> yeah, I get that coming from the frozen chosen. That, that sounds like a typical Presbyterian take on the Holy Spirit. And I just don't accept that. No, thank you. I believe in a personal God who interacts and speaks with his people. I want a vibrant relationship with my Lord and Savior through the power of the Holy Spirit. I would respond by saying that when God calls someone effectually, he calls them through the power of the Holy Spirit, working through his word. And when we come to Christ, the word of God is vibrant. The word of God is alive. In fact, it is literally called living and active in Hebrews. The word of God is living. It is vibrant. Christians should not depend on or expect private revelations, direct voices of God speaking to them when he has given us his word. 
The Holy Spirit does speak to us. He does guide us as we look upon and feed upon the Word of God. I remember one false teacher um, that's very popular. Um, they have videos made. They have books out. They're, they're in all Christian bookstores. And one of the things they were teaching this particular day was the need to hear from God. And they, they just laid it right down on the table. They weren't trying to hide it. They said, sometimes the Bible isn't enough, they said. The, the, the Bible is good. Don't get me wrong. I said, but I need to hear from God. Don't you? I want to hear the voice of God. And they appealed to uh, the Gospel of John. The sheep, uh, Jesus' sheep hear his voice. And they turned that around and said, we need to hear his voice. Now, whether they realized it or not, they were doing great harm to the church because there were some people that actually believed this teacher and that were expecting to hear from God, to hear the voice of God and becoming discouraged or thinking something's wrong with me if I don't hear the voice of God. Now, whether they wanted to admit it or not, they were teaching the insufficiency of Scripture, which is just false teaching. No one should feel disappointed. No one should feel shortchanged because they do not have God speaking to them directly. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And his Son is enough. His Word is enough. I would close by asking each one of us here this morning, do you know the Son? Do you know the Son of God that Hebrews speaks of? And I I don't mean do you know of him. You may know of Jesus, but I'm asking do you know him? Do you know him with saving faith? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? I remember a dear brother of mine who told me his story. We were in a small group, and every once in a while, um, attendance was low, and it was just me and him. And I remember him telling me his story, and it was quite remarkable. He uh, was an unbeliever as a young man, and he told me, he said, Kurt, I had it all. I had this really high-paying job at a local factory. I had bought a house. I had the truck. I had the Harley-Davidson full dress. I had a girlfriend who was living with me. I, I had it all. But I didn't have everything. He said, because even when I was an unbeliever, I knew something was missing spiritually. I would, he said, this is his testimony, I would every once in a while, something I would see, maybe at Christmas time or at Easter, or someone would say something, I would see a cross. He said, I knew there was something missing. I knew that, that there was somebody called Jesus Christ, but I just didn't want to get too close to him because I didn't want any of that. And so I would silence that voice. I would just not think about it. I wouldn't go to church. I wouldn't read the Bible. I wouldn't hang out. After all, all my friends were unbelievers, and that suited me just fine. Then he got an accident, uh, totaled his bike, got a head injury, lost his job, lost his girlfriend. And during that process of recovery, God found him. He, He heard something. I can't remember exactly, but it was something on the TV, something on the radio, that put a rock in his shoe. He couldn't shake it, and so he started going to a church and started sitting under the faithful proclamation of the word, and before long, he was called. God called him. He gave his life to Christ. And since then, God healed him enough that he got a different job, and even though he still had some cognition issues, he couldn't do everything, but God 
healed him enough that he could do that job very well. And he was very thankful for it. And today, he is walking with God. In other words, today, that man is pulling in the same direction as the Spirit of God and the Son of God. No longer does he have to silence that voice when it surfaces in the back of his head that says, you know Jesus is real. You know you're not going to live forever. You know there's a judgment coming. You know you're walking in sin. He no longer has to silence that voice. Instead, he cherishes the relationship that he has with God as he pulls in the same direction by faith in his son. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross to save sinners like you and me. Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin. The penalty for the sin that we have very much committed in our life is death. It is eternity in hell. We will all pay that price unless we have someone else pay it for us. We need the righteousness of Christ because when we stand before God, we don't have righteousness, we have sin. We need perfect righteousness. Jesus achieved that. He's the only one who ever achieved that. God promises that when we put our faith in him, when we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus, he promises to credit the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us and forgive our sin based on the sacrifice of Christ's blood shed on our behalf. That's what it means to be saved. Are you saved? Are you saved? It's the most important decision of your life. Luke 24, 46 through 47 says, It is written, this is Christ speaking, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. This is what we're doing here and every Sunday. We are proclaiming Jesus and the repentance of sins of, of, of sin and the forgiveness of sins in his name. We're proclaiming it. And that proclamation, the Bible teaches, serves a, a dual function. It allows God to effectually call people, and it also shuts the door and bars the kingdom from those who don't believe. So I would ask you, are you saved? I presented the gospel to an older man one time who I knew was not in Christ and I wanted to see saved and I laid it all out for him. I laid it as clear as I just did right now and I said, I was trying to get a response. I said, what do you think of that? I said, where, where are you at? He said, well, um, I like what you all said just there but I guess, in, I guess I'm just kind of in the middle of the road. There is no middle of the road. The Bible teaches no such thing. To say that I'm not against Christ, I'm just not all in. I haven't really you know, jumped in with both feet. That's the same as saying I have rejected him. And in the end, on the day of judgment, it is the same as rejecting him. We are either in Christ or not in Christ. We are either in his kingdom or not in his kingdom. We are either saved or we're not saved. So I would ask each one of us this question. Are you saved? Because until that happens, you will not be pulling in the same direction as God. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. 
We thank you that we do not have to look to the, the teachings or the utterances of men today to discover new insights, new revelation, new truth. We thank you for the word of God laid down once and for all. Father, we do thank you for those that have the gift of teaching, for those that have the gift of exhortation, for those that are skilled and been trained. Where would, we, where would any of us be if we did not have gifted teachers, gifts that Christ has given the church to help us understand that word? Helps those authors that have written those books that have made a life-changing difference in how we see things. Father, we thank you for all that. But we proclaim the sufficiency of Scripture. We do not want to look for anything new. We should not expect anything new. Jesus is enough. Father, we thank you for all that you have given us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.